today, on Saturday the 2nd of July, my wife and I, along with an estimated crowd of 225,000 people, assembled in the meadows to join the Make Poverty History March. The march was due to start at 12 noon, but such was the size of the crowd that we had to wait until we were told it was safe for us to leave. If you were there, you'll know that an announcement was made again and again and again, thanking us for our patience and telling us we'd be ready to set off once everything was ready. Finally, after about an hour, we did set off and enjoyed a very good-natured march, well organized and well supervised by the police. And eventually, we walked all the way around Edinburgh, and we came back at Princess Street and at the top there, and eventually arrived about an hour and a half later, back in the meadows. And we were astounded to see that there were crowds of people who still hadn't even set off on the march. In fact, I understand that some people waited over four hours before they could set off. Everyone I spoke to assured me, however, that it was well worth the wait. Well, over four hours may seem a long time to wait for a promised event to take place. But I want you to imagine this evening what it must have been like to have waited over four centuries for a promise to be fulfilled, for a planned event to take place. Yet today we see that this is what actually happened as we conclude our series, Major Lessons from the Minor Prophets, with the theme, Promised Fulfilled. We've seen in this series on the Minor Prophets that God is a God who speaks. He speaks through human voices, through those who are described as prophets, who, as we've just said, declare the word of the Lord. The voice is human, but the message is divine, the word of the Lord. And I simply want to trace this theme this evening. You'll need a Bible in front of you to follow. There are Bibles in the pews. This theme of communication under three headings. The first word I want to leave with you is the word silence. Last week, Assistant Pastor Colin Adams very uh, well focused for us on the last of the prophets, the one that we just read about, the prophet Malachi. Malachi's book is the last book in the first part of the Bible, which we call the Old Testament. I think it's as simple as possible, because maybe this evening you're not even familiar with what the Bible looks like. And Malachi's prophecy ends with a final promise that Derek read for us a moment ago. Look again at the last verses of what we call the Old Testament, or the Old Covenant, agreement between God and the people of Israel. Here's the last promise. See... I will send you the prophet Elijah before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children, the hearts of the children to their fathers, or else I will come and strike the land with a curse. Here is a promise. The greatest of the Old Testament prophets, Elijah. God says he will send Elijah again to prepare the hearts of the people in order that God's judgment, his curse, may be averted. So the prophecy of Malachi finishes with a promise. And although the people of Israel don't know it, the fulfillment of the promise would be a long time coming. 
For after Malachi, the voice of the prophets is silent until the fulfilment of the promise is made. Now in the cases of promises made by human beings, we've all made them, we don't always keep them. Sometimes we're unable to keep them. I'll see you next week and I fall ill and can't make it. Or I'll see you next week and I get a better offer from someone else I'd prefer to see than you. I wouldn't do this of course, but... uh, And I break my promise. But God always keeps his promises. There's a beautiful verse in the Old Testament that expresses this in a little known book called Numbers. There was a, a pagan prophet. His name was Balaam. And he was hired by a king called Balak. And this king hired him to do a job. Because the people of Israel, passing through his land, en route, you remember, the exodus from Egypt to the promised land. And Balak, King Balak, said to Balaam the prophet, now I'm going to give you a big bag of gold, what I want you to do is stand on top of this mountain, and as they walk past, I want you to curse them. Because they're a danger to me. And Balaam said, no problem, your majesty. Got the bag of gold, stood on the mountain, and he couldn't do it. Why? Because God had promised to bless these people. And he came out with this amazingly profound statement. It's a verse well worth learning. Numbers 23, verse 19. God always keeps his promises. He said, the king said to him, listen, I paid you to do a job. Why didn't you do it? And he said, well, your majesty, it's like this. God is not a man that he should lie. Or a son of man that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and then not fulfill? No, of course. Now, if this is true, if God always keeps the promises he makes, what should we do? Well, we need to wait expectantly to look for the promise to be fulfilled. Maybe today is the day when God will do what he has promised. But at the same time, when we have no indication of when that day may be, we have to balance and keep intention, waiting expectantly with waiting patiently. God has a different view of time to us. There's only one psalm in the Bible that's attributed to Moses, Psalm 90. It begins like this, Before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting you are God. You live in a different dimension. You turn men back to dust, saying, Return to dust, O sons of men, for a thousand years in your sight, are like a day that has just gone by. Or like a watch in the night, Psalm 90, verses 2 to 4. And so, Malachi returns to dust. He passes from the scene. Empires rise and fall. A century after Malachi, the great Persian Empire, is succeeded by the Greek Empire, led by this young, dynamic soldier general who came to be known as Alexander the Great. After Alexander's death, this is a very quick part of history, by the way, if you don't know what happened between the Old Testament and the New Testament, alright? Just stay with me, alright? After Alexander's death, his kingdom was divided into two parts among two of his generals. One of the generals and his successors based down in Egypt was very tolerant of other people and other cultures. But the other one, based more in the area of the Middle East, was very intolerant and his successors sought to ruthlessly enforce the Greek way of life on all the people that they'd conquered and the Greek culture. And when they got to Israel, they banned the Jewish faith. They prescribed the Jewish Torah and the scriptures 
and they desecrated the temple in Jerusalem. And there was a great uprising, a nationalistic revolt led by a remarkable family in Israel who were nicknamed the Maccabees, which means the Hammers. Nothing to do with football teams. This is an Israeli liberation army. And there's a 24-year war of independence. You can read about the Maccabees. In some Bibles they've got what's called the Apocrypha and there's one and two Maccabees. You can read about them in there if you're interested in that. A Handel wrote a great opera, Judas Maccabeus, which you may have heard, or maybe most of the young people never even heard of it, but never mind. And a century later, finally, the Jewish people got their own independence. All these events are happening, alright, in this period. Finally, the Jewish people got their independence. But a century later, the greatest empire the world had ever seen, founded in Rome, began to spread out. And in 63 AD, the Roman general Pompey took Jerusalem after a three-month siege, massacring the priests, entering the temple. Yet through all the war and the noise of strife, still the voice of the prophets remained silent. The promise through Malachi remained unfulfilled. The people of Israel are still waiting, expectantly, patiently. Now, if you've got the Bible open in Malachi, if you turn to the end of Malachi, uh, you can't do this if this is a pew Bible, but if you've got your own Bible and you don't mind writing things in it. Some people don't like writing in the Bible, some people write lots of things in the column. After Malachi, and before the heading that says New Testament, you've probably even got a blank page. If, you, if you've got your own Bible you like writing in it, write the words, 430 years until you come to the New Covenant, the New Testament. And now the promise is about to be fulfilled. And to pick up the story, you turn over in the New Testament, you don't come to Matthew, but chronologically in time, you need to turn to Luke. So turn over Matthew, Mark, Luke, and we're going to read about the fulfilment as we come to the second part of our theme, which is speech. God finally speaks after this great long period of silence. Now let's read the first part of Luke's Gospel. Now keep in your mind, if you can, what we read in Malachi, right? Because you're going to hear it again. And Luke introduced his Gospel by telling us why he wrote it. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us. Notice the word fulfilled. Just as they were handed down to us by those from who were from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, the person you wrote it for, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Here's the story, again, picking up the timeline. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were upright in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commandments and regulations blamelessly, but they had no children because Elizabeth was barren. They were both well on in years. Once when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before the Lord, he was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time came for the burning of incense, all the assembled worshippers were praying outside. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. 
when Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. You are to give him the name John. He will be a joy and a delight to you. Many will rejoice because of his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from birth. Many of the people of this world will he bring back to the Lord their God and he will go before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedience, the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? I'm an old man, my wife is well on in years. The angel answered, I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. I've been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you'll be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens because you did not believe my words which will come true at their proper time. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. When he came out, he couldn't speak to them. They realized he had seen a vision in the temple for he kept making sounds to them but remained unable to speak. When his time of service was completed, he returned home. After this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant for five months, remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. Now, this is the word of God. This is the next part in the story. Finally, after 430 years of silence, God speaks again. Not this time through a prophet, but through an angelic being. And so we come to our second theme in the communication process. Silence, and now speech. The opening words place the story in time, in history. In the time of Herod, king of Judea. They introduce us to the main character, a priest called Zechariah. Herod was a ruthless tyrant. Zechariah, in contrast, was a good man. He's also an old man. He'd served the Lord faithfully for many years as a priest in the temple, despite the great sorrow of his life that he and his wife had no children. Now, from the time of King David, the priests had been organized into 24 families who took it in turns to serve in the temple in Jerusalem. One of their duties was to keep the incense burning on the altar in the temple. And so they fed it morning before the morning and evening sacrifice with coal and incense. And the priestly division of Abijah, to which Zechariah belonged, was on duty on this particular day. And they used to draw lots to see who kept the fire going. And Zechariah was chosen by lot, but he was appointed by God, because God is in control of this story. It is history. It is his story. It was a great and maybe once in a lifetime privilege for a priest. Yet it was to be an even greater day than anyone could have anticipated. The worshippers are praying outside in the temple courts. Zechariah proceeds to the golden altar in front of the curtain which marked off the most holy place where God dwelt in his glory between the cherubim. And as he does so, an angel of the Lord appears to him standing at the right side of the altar of incense. No wonder that Zechariah is startled, paralyzed with fear that the angel has a message of reassurance and hope. The message from the angel concerns the birth of a boy. And this child will be, for Zechariah and Elizabeth, the answer to their prayers. What prayer? 
The prayer they must have prayed year after year. That God would grant them a child. Perhaps now with the advent of old age, they'd given up praying. Bit of a waste of time when they got to that age. Resigned to the fact that God had chosen not to give them their request. Perhaps they'd even forgotten the prayer. But God had not forgotten the seeming delay they had suffered in answer to their prayer, as so often with our prayers, was for the greater glory of God. For the birth of their son would fulfill God's greater plans. He would not only answer their prayers, but he would answer the prayers of the people of Israel. The fulfillment of the promise. This is it. What promise? The promise made through the prophet Malachi. And should Zechariah be in any doubt, the angel actually quotes Malachi chapter 4. The final words. A priest like Zechariah would have been familiar with these words. And so after all the long years of silence, God speaks. His promises are about to be fulfilled. The greatest events in the history of humankind are about to unfold. The day has arrived, the silence is broken, God speaks. How does God work in our world? He works through people. Not because he has to, but because he chooses to. He could work through angels alone. He could bypass human beings. But angels are only his agents. Their greater role in history is limited. The greater privilege and responsibility lie with human beings like an elderly priest called Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth. Or like you and me. And although our part in God's plan will never be as significant as these events were for Zechariah, nonetheless, as we hear God's word and respond to it, so the events of our lives in some mysterious and amazing way dovetail together with God's greater plans for our world. But here's the crucial factor. It is how we respond when God speaks as it was for Zechariah. And now we turn to the third and final word in the communication process. Silence, speech, dumbness. Think again a moment. I've often thought about Zechariah and this story over the years. I've read the Bible many years. <coughs> He's an old man. He's a good man. He served the Lord faithfully for many years. He knows the scriptures intimately. He's a man of prayer. He is in the temple, on duty, this day, the right man, in the right place, at the right time, to receive the most momentous news in human history from an archangel. Now what response would you expect Zechariah to make when he hears the angel's message? Would you not expect a response of praise? Maybe an appropriate song, or at least a cry of joy. Our heartfelt hallelujah. But no, Zechariah's response is one of unbelief. Look at verse 18. Zechariah asked the angel, How can I be sure of this? I'm an old man and my wife is well on in years. Incredible. He can't believe it. It seems impossible to him. What more proof does he want? You can almost imagine, visualize, the angel Gabriel, drawing himself up to his full height, whatever it was, with increasing radiance and brilliance. I'm Gabriel. 
I stand in the presence of God and have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you'll be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens because you did not believe my words which will come true at their proper time. Now notice two things that the angel says will happen. I need a drink of water before I get done this. First of all, a penalty is imposed on Zechariah because of his unbelief. Zechariah is unable to speak. He's dumbstruck, literally. When he finally emerges into the outer courts, he's unable to communicate with the worshippers. He can only gesticulate and make signs. They know something important has happened, but what they cannot say, and neither can Zechariah. The most incredible experience of his life. The inauguration of the most amazing events in human history, and he cannot tell anybody about it. What a tragedy. Now before you say, oh if I'd been any sandals, I would have believed right away. What could be more convincing than a message from an archangel? Let me simply say that there are many of us who are Christians who know God, who act in a very similar way. Oh we're good at that folks. With years of Christian experience, a knowledge of God's word. Here we are in church today on this beautiful evening when we could be relaxing at home and yet we have a heart of unbelief that has lost confidence in God in his word and in prayer perhaps the years for you have gone by as a Christian some of you older folk here this evening like me and they've been silent years and we've given up hope. Perhaps prayers being unanswered, the prayers that we've prayed for our children, for our families. And we've come to believe that maybe God doesn't hear. And like the people of Malachi's days we saw last week, our Christian faith has degenerated into mere ritual with no anticipation and no expectation. What did you expect when you came in church this evening? Oh, it's just another evening service. Did you come with an expectant heart? Did you come with a sense of anticipation? What God might say to you? And if we're in this state, we need to be careful. The New Testament book of Hebrews is very strong on this theme. Hebrews 3 verse 12. See to it, brothers, fellow Christians, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart. It turns away from the living God. Now how do you detect an unbelieving heart? You see it as in Zechariah's case. By the fact that such a person has nothing contemporary or real to say about what the Lord has done and what the Lord has said to you. Oh, we may be able to talk about other things. Grumble and complain about many things like the people of Israel did in their wilderness wanderings. But as far as God is concerned, as far as what the Lord has done in your life, you are silent. You do not say, you cannot say to your friends and neighbours and your fellow Christians, hear what the Lord has done for me. Hear what the Lord has said to me. If we went round this church this evening and said, what did God say to you this week from his word? How many of you scratch your heads and begin to think, what can I say? You cannot and do not lift up your voice in praise. 
from the heart with God's people. You are silent, dumbstruck. I ask myself, am I such a person? Are you such a person? That's the penalty for unbelief. But I want you to leave you with a note of encouragement from the story of Zechariah and the response of the angel. Notice what the angel said. The angel Gabriel did not at this point report back to the courts of heaven and say, Oh Lord, that priest did not respond to your word. Have you got an understudy, a second choice that I can go to to fulfill your plans? Is there a substitute? <laughs> no, God had chosen Zechariah. Look what the angel said. The answer of the angel. Yes, Zechariah was unable to speak. But notice what he said. I am Gabriel, I stand in the presence of God, I have been sent to speak to you, to tell you this good news, and now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens, because you did not believe my words. Here's the wonderful last bit. Which will come true their proper time. So they did. Zechariah went home. And the miracle happened. His wife conceived. A baby who became God's messenger, preparing the way for the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. So you say, if God is going to fulfill his plans anyway, what's the difference between unbelief and faith? The difference is whether you participate in it and celebrate what God is doing in your life and in your, your church. Or whether you remain a silent spectator. You see, eventually, don't have time to read the story, read the rest of the chapter when you get home, it's a wonderful chapter, Luke 1. After nine months of silence, after the birth of his son, something remarkable happens, suddenly Zechariah can speak. We all say, let's give him, his, let's give him this name and that name. He says, no, his name is John. Who spoke? What did he say? And there's a wonderful psalm of praise, Zechariah's song. You can find it in Luke 1, 67 to 79. But, how much better to respond instantly when God speaks in faith. Now again, we don't have time to look at this in detail, but when you get home, read Luke 1 and compare. The angel Gabriel had two great missions, six months apart. first one was to a priest called Zechariah. The second one was to a young girl called Mary. Both concerned the birth of a child. One a miracle birth, the other one an impossible birth. One was an old man, the other was a young woman. One was a priest, the other was a teenage girl probably. One was in a temple with all the paraphernalia of priesthood and worship. The other, as far as we know, happened at home. And yet Mary responds in simple yet profound faith, a faith we should imitate. Be like Mary. When she hears what the angel Gabriel says, she says, I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. And there follows that wonderful hymn of God's praise that we call the Magnificat. Still sung Sunday by Sunday in churches throughout Christendom down the centuries. No, she's not strengthened. She's able to sing God's praise. She's able to rejoice in God, her Saviour. And that's the place I want to be. And I hope it's the place you want to be this evening. Almost finished, and I got a conclusion.
is I need to conclude where the Bible concludes. We began, you see, didn't we, in Malachi. We've come a long way very quickly, all right? We began with the final words and the final promise of the Old Testament from the prophet Malachi. The last words of the Old Testament fulfilled in the coming of one in the power and spirit of Elijah, John the Baptist. To prepare the way for the coming of the one the Lord called in chapter 3, my messenger, who is the Lord Jesus Christ. Now here's the good news. The Bible that we have does not end with Malachi. It does not end with the Old Testament, the Old Covenant. You see, God speaks the final and decisive and last word through his son Jesus Christ. The book of Hebrews begins on that note. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers in many and various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Jesus is God's last word to our world. A word that brings us back to God. That reconciles us to God. That turns aside God's wrath so that we might experience God's favour and blessing in our lives. You see, God's word does not end with Malachi. We live under a new covenant, for we have a New Testament. And the New Testament ends with a book called Revelation. What's it about? Future promise. Like Malachi, it ends with a promise that is yet to be fulfilled. How is it being fulfilled? It will be fulfilled in the second coming of Jesus. If you've got a Bible, just turn right to the back page, to Revelation 22. We're almost there, but stay here, it's very important. Look at verse 20. He testifies to these things, all these things about what is going to happen in the future. He testifies to these things, the Lord Jesus Christ says, Yes, I'm coming soon. That's his promise. And now there's a period of silence. God has spoken finally and decisively. We wait expectantly, yet patiently, for the coming of Christ. For to the Lord one day is a thousand years. A thousand years is one day, says Peter in his second letter, chapter 3, quoting from Psalm 90. The question is, are you ready? Are you waiting expectantly for Christ's second coming? Maybe today. Maybe they won't have the Olympics in 2012 in London. Maybe there will be a far greater celebration. But sadly, the opening chapter of Revelation says, a far greater sorrow for all the nations of the earth will mourn when they see him whom they pierced. Now we live in that period waiting for the fulfilment of the final promise. This is just such a wonderful, this is God's word, it's so complete, every bit fits together. It's not an ordinary book. It's God's word. And his son says, I'm coming soon. Are you looking for him? Are you expecting him? Here's the test. Are you able to pray the final prayer of the Bible with enthusiasm? What's the final prayer of the Bible? It's there in Revelation. He testifies to these things, says, yes, I'm coming soon. 
What do God's people respond? Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The longer you live in this world, the more you look at the media and what's happening in our world, if, if within you God has placed his spirit, he's put that longing for the return of Christ that says, Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord. Here's the final promise of the Bible. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. It's only God's grace that will keep us on that day. His undeserved favour that he's shown to us in Jesus Christ. And if you're not a Christian, it's that grace that you need. Because you'll never stand there in your own merits. You'll never turn aside God's righteous judgment on your life by your own merits. Only through Jesus and his grace. And what's the final word of the Bible? This is the final word of this sermon. It's the great word of the Bible. Amen! Does it mean in Hebrew? It means, it's sure. It's absolutely certain. All that God promises is absolutely assured. God always keeps his promises. And this is the major lesson from the minor prophets. 